Well, good evening. Well, a few of you are still awake after having a nice meal. Some of you are taking a nap, I know. Well, it's good to be here. Good to see all of you. And I decided to wear my yarmulke tonight, partly because it keeps my bald spot warm. Actually, you know what uh, right t today and this week is? It's a part of the Jewish holiday season or festival season. Uh, this is the festival of Sukkot, which is the festival of uh, Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. There's different names that's given to it. It's basically a time of celebration for when the Israelites were out wandering around in the desert. And so... They decided to have a holiday and a festival so they could go back out in some kind of uh, desolate place and uh, build these little booths or uh, tabernacles, as they call them, and spend a week camping out. That's basically what they do, and so that's kind of a, the festival. So anyway, it started on the 21st, goes until the 27th. Well, tonight we are... Picking it up at chapter 11, I hope that all of you have read ahead, and uh, you probably found that it was an interesting reading in some ways. Uh, sometimes you might have said, seems like I already heard that, saw that, but and that's kind of the way it works. But let's jump into this. We're going to start with uh, chapter 11 and go through about middle of 13, and then I'll pick up the rest of that. Uh, so, this uh, section we're going to call One More Plague, and this section focuses on a fairly unpopular subject, and that is death. King Yahweh was about to confront King Pharaoh with another king, the king Death. In fact, in Job, it, it is even called the King of Terrors. So the last enemy, death, Paul calls it the last enemy, would visit Egypt with one last plague and deliver one last blow to the proud ruler of the land. So in one solemn night, all the firstborn sons and all the firstborn livestock in Egypt would die, and there would be a great cry throughout the land. Only then would Pharaoh let God's people go. Death. Death wouldn't visit the Hebrews and their livestock in the land of Goshen because the Israelites belonged to the Lord and were his special people. See, in the land of Goshen, all that would die would be innocent yearling lambs, and that is one for each Hebrew household. This night would mark the inauguration of Passover, Israel's first national feast. And so in this section, we want to examine five different aspects of the Passover event. The first one is the Passover and the Egyptians. The people of Egypt had been initiated by the first six plagues and their land and possessions had been devastated by the next two plagues. And the ninth plague, the three days of darkness, 
set the stage for the most dreadful plague of all, when the messengers of death would visit the land. Moses heard God's word, verses 1 through 3. In fact, it says, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. These verses describe what happened before Moses was summoned to the palace to hear Pharaoh's last offer. Moses' speech, found in verses 4 through 8, was delivered between verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10, and it ended with Moses leaving the palace in great anger. This is described in chapter 10, verse 29, and also in verse 8. God told Moses that he would send one more plague to Egypt, a plague so terrible that Pharaoh would not only let the Israelites go, but would actually command them to go. Pharaoh would drive them out of the land, and he would fulfill the promise God had made before the plagues had started. Moses told the Hebrew people the time had come for them to collect their unpaid wages for all of the work that they had done and their ancestors had done as slaves in Egypt for years and years. What's interesting is the Hebrew word here that's uh, for ask and, and ask for these things is interesting because it's a it very simple word. It means to simply ask or to request. And so the Hebrews didn't intend to return what the Egyptians gave them. In other words, they were just asking them to just give them those things, give them uh, the wealth because it was payment for an outstanding debt the, that Egypt actually owed Israel. Now, God promised Abraham that his descendants would leave Egypt with great substance back in Genesis chapter 15. So asking was the thing they were doing. Give us everything you've got. Give us all your gold and silver. And he repeated that promise to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. And so God promised that they would take the spoils of Egypt with them. God had given his servant Moses great respect among the Egyptians. And now he would give the Hebrews great favor with the Egyptians, who would freely give their wealth to the Hebrews. Moses warned Pharaoh, verses 4 through 10, this is what the Lord says, all the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt. This was Moses' final address to Pharaoh, who rejected it just as he did all of the other warnings. Pharaoh had no fear of God in his heart, so he didn't take Moses' word very seriously. But in rejecting God's word, Pharaoh caused the finest young men in the land to die. And this brought deep sorrow to himself and to his people. Got two questions to ask at this point, and that is, why did God slay only the firstborn? Or the other question is, was he just in doing so when Pharaoh was the true culprit? Well, let me try to answer those questions. And actually, the answer to the first question helps to answer the second question. You see, in most cultures, the firstborn sons are considered to be special. And in Egypt, they were actually considered to be sacred. And so we need to remember 
that God actually calls Israel his firstborn son. And at the very beginning of their conflict, Moses warned Pharaoh that the way he treated God's firstborn would determine how God treated Egypt's firstborn. Pharaoh tried to kill the Hebrew male babies, and his officers brutally mistreated the Hebrew slaves. And so in slaying the firstborn, the Lord was simply paying Pharaoh back. Compensation. Compensation is a fundamental law of life. Now, God isn't unjust in permitting this law to operate in the world. Pharaoh drowned the Hebrew babies, so God drowned Pharaoh's army. Jacob, you might remember, lied to his father Isaac, and years later, Jacob's sons lied to him. David committed adultery and had the woman's husband murdered. David's daughter was raped, and two of his sons were murdered. Haman built a gallows on which to hang Mordecai, but it was Haman who was hanged on that gallows instead. Galatians gives us a little clue here. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. As to the justice of this 10th plague, who can pass judgment on the acts of the Lord? When righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, the psalmist wrote those words. But why should one's, one man's resistance to God cause the death of many innocent young men? So as to the innocence of these firstborn sons, only God knows the human heart and can dispense his justice perfectly. Back in Genesis, it says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Sometimes we just don't have real clear answers, and we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. When you read the book of Genesis, you learn that God often rejected the firstborn and chose the next son to carry on the family line and receive God's special blessing. In fact, God chose Abel and then Seth, but not Cain. He chose Shem, not Japheth. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. These choices not only magnify God's sovereign grace, but they are a are symbolic way of saying that God does not accept our first birth. We must experience a second birth, a spiritual birth before God can accept us. In fact, the Gospel of John is all about that. The firstborn son represents humanity's very best, but that isn't good enough for a holy God. Because of our first birth, we inherit Adam's sinful nature, and we are lost. Because of our first birth, we inherit that sinful nature. But when we experience a second birth, through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive God's divine nature and are accepted in Christ. Pharaoh and the Egyptian people sinned against a flood of light and insulted God's mercy. The Lord endured with much long suffering the rebellion and arrogance of the king of Egypt 
as well as his cruel treatment of the Hebrew people. God warned Pharaoh many times, but the man just wouldn't submit. Yahweh, Yahweh publicly humiliated the Egyptian gods and goddesses and proved himself to be the only true and living God. Yet the nation would not believe. Ecclesiastes gives us a little hint here. It says, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. God's mercy should have brought Pharaoh to his knees. Instead, he repeatedly hardened his heart. Pharaoh's officials humbled themselves before Moses. Why couldn't Pharaoh follow that example? Well, Proverbs gives us a good understanding of that, that it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this was Pharaoh. Let's look at chapter 12, the Passover and the Israelites. So can I kind of jump through verses 128, 1 through 28, and then 43 through 57. You've got all this in your notes. You can follow along with this. See, Passover marked a new beginning for the Hebrews, and it bound them together as a nation. And when the Lord liberates you from bondage, it's the dawning of a new day. It's the beginning of a new life. Whenever you see the words redeem or redemption in the New Testament especially, they declare freedom from slavery. In fact, if we think about what was going on in the New Testament, uh, there was a tremendous amount of slavery during New Testament times because of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's estimated that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So to be redeemed, to be saved out of your free, or be set free out of your slavery, this was something really important. Well, the Hebrew believers would immediately think of the Passover and Israel's deliverance from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. The Hebrew nation is the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, had two calendars. A civil calendar that began in our September, October, and a religious calendar that began in March, April. Now, New Year's Day in the civil year, Rosh Hashanah, beginning of the year, fell in the seventh month of the religious calendar. And Rosh Hashanah ushered in special events in the month of Tishri, the Feast of Ta Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where we are this week, or Sukkot. But Passover, Passover marked the beginning of the religious year. And at Passover, the focus was the lamb. So Isaac's question, you might remember back in Genesis 22, Isaac's question, where is the lamb? It introduced one of the major themes of the Old Testament as God's people waited for the Messiah. So the question was ultimately answered by John the Baptist when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that, the Passover Lamb, is a picture of Jesus Christ. And this is affirmed in the New Testament. It's affirmed numbers of times. It's affirmed by the evangelist uh, Philip in Acts. 
He talks about it. It's affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Corinthians. It's affirmed by Peter, as he wrote in 1 Peter, and it's affirmed by John in the book of Revelation. And that is the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. The lamb was chosen and examined in chapter 12, verse 16 and following. But in it, it says in backing up a little bit, it says, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses. On the 10th day of this month, each person must choose a lamb or a, lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. This was the 10th day of the month and carefully watched for four days to make sure it met the divine specifications. There's no question that Jesus met all of the requirements to be our lamb. In fact, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And during the days preceding Passover, our Lord's enemies questioned him repeatedly, waiting for him to say something they could attack. And during his various trials and interrogations, Jesus was repeatedly questioned, and yet he passed every test. Jesus knew no sin, did no sin, and in him there was no sin. He is the perfect Lamb of God. On the 14th day of the month, at evening, the Lamb was slain, and its blood was applied to the beam and side post of the doors of the houses in which the Hebrew families lived. It was the life of the Lamb that saved, it wasn't the life of the Lamb that saved the people from judgment but it was the death of the lamb that actually saved them. Because Leviticus tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In fact, Hebrews repeats that same concept, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And some people who claim to admire the life and teachings of Jesus don't want the cross of Jesus, and yet it is his death on the cross that paid the price of our redemption. Jesus was our substitute. He died our death penalty, suffered the judgment for our sin. However, to be effective, the blood had to be applied to the doorpost because God promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It isn't sufficient simply to know that Christ was sacrificed for the sins of the world. We must appropriate that sacrifice for ourselves. We must be able to say with Paul, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we need to say with Mary, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. So our appropriation of the atonement must be personal. It must be as John said, my Lord and my God. The Hebrews dipped flimsy hyssop plants into the basins of blood and applied the blood to the doorpost. Hyssop was later used to sprinkle the blood that ratified the covenant later in chapter 24. We'll see that. And that cleansed and healed leopards. Lepers in Leviticus, it talks about this hyssop. Our faith must be as weak as the hyssop. But it's not faith in our faith that saves us. 
but faith in the blood of the Savior. That's where we need to put our faith, in the fact that it is the blood of Jesus Christ that redeems us, that saves us. Chapter 12, verse 8 through 11, talks about the lamb roasted and eaten. Number of passages in there, I'll let you, I hope you read those. The eating was done in haste. Each family member was ready to move out with the signal, when the signal was given, the meal consisted of the roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Each of these symbolized an important spiritual truth, as you have on your table, some of the symbols of Passover. In order that the lamb might be kept whole, it was roasted in the fire and not boiled in water. The Hebrews didn't have vessels large enough for boiling a whole lamb, and in fact, it was forbidden. To be placed in a pot, the bones would have been, had to be broken, and yet the bones were not to be broken, nor were the pieces of meat to be carried outside of the houses. And so it was important to see the wholeness of the lamb. We trust Christ that we might be saved from our sins by his sacrifice. But we must also feed on Christ in order to have strength for our daily pilgrim journey. As we worship, meditate on God's word, pray and believe, we appropriate the spiritual nourishment of Jesus Christ and grow in grace and knowledge. So along with the lamb, the Israelites ate bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Tasting the bitter herbs would remind the Hebrews of their years of bitter bondage in the land of Egypt. And when circumstances became difficult during their wilderness journey, the people usually recalled the good old days and wanted to go back to Egypt. They forgot the bitterness of their servitude in the, that horrible iron furnace. Their bread was unleavened, without yeast, for two reasons. There wasn't time for bread to rise. And leaven was a symbol of impurity to the Hebrews. And so for a week after Passover, they were required to eat unleavened bread and to remove every trace of leaven from their dwellings. Yeast is an image of sin. It's hidden. It's hidden. It works silently and secretly. It spreads and pollutes, and it causes dough to rise. But Jesus and Paul compared false teaching to yeast, but it's also compared to hypocrisy and sinful living. Paul admonished local churches to purge out the sin that was in their midst and present themselves as an unleavened loaf to the Lord. And if any meat was left over from the feast, it had to be burned. The lamb was so special that it couldn't be treated like ordinary food. And the manna, the manna was special and couldn't be stored from day to day except for the day before the Sabbath. Exodus 12, 25 through 28 and 13, 8 through 10 talk about how they ate as families and as a congregation. The meal was prepared for the family and was to be eaten by the family members. God's concern is for the entire family and not just for the parents. If the precious Hebrew children were not protected by the blood and strengthened by the food, they couldn't be delivered from Egypt. And that would be the end of the nation. 
Though there were many Hebrew households in the land of Goshen, God saw all of them as one congregation. Now, when we meet as a local congregation and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see each assembly as a part of one body, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could write the whole building, the whole family, the whole body, talking about the church of Jesus Christ. Israel was one nation because of the blood of the Lamb, and the church is one fellowship because of Jesus Christ. Not only was the Passover supper an ordinance to be obeyed, but it was also a memorial to be celebrated, to keep al be kept alive in Israel. The story of Exodus. After Israel had entered and conquered the promised land, it would be easy for the people just simply to settle down and forget the great acts of God on their behalf. The annual observance of Passover would give Hebrew parents another opportunity to teach their children the meaning of their freedom and what God really did for them. The adults were to, to be the living links with Israel's past so that each new generation would understand what it meant to be a member of God's chosen nation. In later years, Orthodox Jews took Exodus 13 verses 8 and 9 and 16 quite literally, along with Deuteronomy. And Moses said that Passover was to be a sign, that is, a reminder to them of what the Lord had done. Now, instead, the Orthodox interpreted this to mean that the Hebrew men were to wear the Scriptures on their person. And so they wrote Scripture passages out on parchment, put them in little tiny boxes, and wore them on their left arm and forehead. In the New Testament, these are called phylacteries. So eating the feast was forbidden to those outside the covenant. Not only did a mixed multitude join with Israel when they left Egypt, but the Hebrews would encounter many different nations on their march. And when they, especially when they reached, by the time they reached Canaan, Israel might be tempted to let their Gentile neighbors join with them, celebrating Passover, their National Independence Day. But the Lord actually prohibited this practice. Later, God would forbid the Hebrews from joining with their neighbors in any of their pagan religious ceremonies. Israel was supposed to be a separated people. Might ask the question, who were these who was this mixed multitude? Who were these foreigners whom God said the Israelites couldn't invite to the Passover celebration? They were non-Israelites who had never been circumcised and therefore were not children of the covenant. They might be slaves in the camp of Israel or sim simply strangers, resident aliens living among the Hebrews. And any stranger or servant could submit to circumcision and become a part of the nation and share the covenant privileges but they also had to accept their responsibilities. Chapter 12, verse 29 through 42, Passover and the Lord. We usually call this event the Hebrew Passover, but the Bible calls it the Lord's Passover. And the observance was more than an Independence Day celebration because the feast was kept unto the Lord. It was the sacrifice 
of the Lord's Passover. And the focus of attention is on the Lord because what occurred that special night was because of him. At least 17 times in Exodus 12, we have the word, the word, the Lord, and is mentioned because he is the one that is in charge. So Passover and the Lord. God revealed his power. In chapter 12, verse 29, it says, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt. And after the Hebrews held their Passover feast between the evenings, they waited for God's signal to depart. At midnight, the Lord struck the firstborn. Death visited every Egyptian household, and a cry arose throughout Egypt. Death is no respecter of persons. And that night, it touched the family of the lowest Egyptian prisoner, as well as Pharaoh himself. But not a single death occurred among the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen. And the lesson here is obvious. Unless you are protected by the blood of Christ, when death comes, you'll be completely unprepared. And you don't know when death is coming. God kept his promises. Verses 31 through 36. God told Moses what was going to happen. And Moses announced it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't believe it. God's word doesn't fail. And just as he said to Moses, the firstborn in Egypt died. It was a great cry in Egypt. Pharaoh told the Israelites to leave. And the Egyptian people freely gave them their wealth. Promises were fulfilled that night that were made to Abraham centuries before. God delivered his people, verses 37 through 42. A rabble of non-Israelites were with them. They had no time to prepare the bread. You see, the Israelites marched boldly out of Egypt in full view of the Egyptians who were busy burying their dead. If there were about 600,000 Hebrew men taking part in the Exodus, then the total number of Hebrews must have been about 2 million. That's about twice the size of greater Fresno. Now let that sink in for just a moment, 2 million. Like an army with its divisions, they marched quickly in orderly fashion with their flocks and their herds. Not one Jew was too feeble to march, and the Egyptians were glad to see the Hebrews get out of town. Two different words are used to describe what is called a rabble of non-Israelites, a mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Hebrews, as I mentioned a moment ago, but let me come back to this. In verse 38 of chapter 12, the word is simply a swarm or a multitude, while in Numbers, actually chapter 11, verse 4, it call, it's called a rabble. And this suggests that the mixed multitude initiated most of the complaining in the camp that created so many problems for Moses. Some of this crowd may have been Egyptians who had married Hebrews, contrary to God's law. Others were probably Egyptians who were frightened, impressed with Yahweh's power, and they wanted to benefit from being with God's chosen people. Perhaps they thought, more judgments might fall on the land, and they just wanted to escape. 
Well, whoever they were, this mixed multitude represents those in this world who outwardly identify with God's people, but inwardly are not truly the children of God. They might be church members, religious leaders, but their attitudes and appetites are radically different from those who truly belong to the Lord. Jesus warned, in fact, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see, great multitudes followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he wasn't impressed with these great crowds. God's promises are never in error, and his timing is never wrong. The exodus took place 480 years before the fourth year of Solomon's reign. It was the year 966. That means that the date of the exodus was about 1446 B.C., and Jacob's descendants had been in Egypt since 1876 B.C. And both Genesis chapter 15 and Acts 7 talk about 400 years, which is basically a rounded out number. And then Galatians, it gives us 430 years. And most, but most scholars will agree 1446 was the date of the exodus. Israel's exodus from Egypt is mentioned many places in Scripture as the greatest demonstration of Yahweh's power in the history of Israel. The prophets point to the exodus as proof of God's love for Israel. They refer to the exodus when they speak about the Hebrews' deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah promises a future regathering of Israel to their land and compares it to the exodus. Often Isaiah mentions a highway that will facilitate this future exodus of the Hebrews from the Gentile nations. Chapter 13, Passover and the Firstborn. Long section here, verses goes on and on and on, but I'll just start commenting on it. This section explains the significance of the firstborn in the nation of Israel. And once a year at Passover, the Hebrews were reminded of God's grace and power. And each time a firstborn male, man or beast, came into the world, the firstborn uh, issue was raised because of God's mighty acts in protecting and redeeming his people and saving the firstborn of humans and livestock from death, all the firstborn belonged to God. They were sanctified, that is set apart for God's exclusive possession. And this ordinance of redemption would take effect when the Hebrews were in the promised land. And later Moses explained how to do it. The firstborn of a donkey being an unclean animal would not be sacrificed to God, so it was redeemed by a lamb. Being a valuable work animal, the donkey was spared only in this way, but the animal was not redeemed. It had to be killed. Parents would bring their firstborn sons to the Lord and offer appropriate sacrifices. When Mary and Joseph came to the temple to redeem the Redeemer, they brought the humble sacrifice of the poor. When a firstborn son was redeemed, or a firstborn animal, it gave adults the opportunity to explain how God had rescued the firstborn in the land of Goshen on Passover night, and how he had slain all the Egyptian firstborn, both humans and livestock, even though he had nothing to do with the birth order in the home, each firstborn son in a Hebrew family was a very special person to the parents and to the Lord. 
Chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. We must never forget that it was the once timid and excuse-making Moses with his brother Aaron confronted, Moses, or confronted Pharaoh time after time and finally conquered Pharaoh and all the power of Egypt. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that Moses accomplished all this by faith in the living God. Passover and the Exodus are memorials to the power of faith. In fact, Hebrews 11 refers to Exodus chapter 10 when Pharaoh threatened to kill Moses if he came back to see him one more time. Moses believed God's promises and had, to, had no fear of what the king might do. Faith. Faith simply means that we rely on God and obey his word, regardless of feelings, circumstances, consequences. By faith, Moses kept the Passover, even though slaying the lambs and putting the blood on the doors looked ridiculous to the Egyptians and was certainly offensive to them. At any time, Pharaoh could have sent his officers to Moses and killed him, but God kept him safe. It was faith in God's word that had brought Moses back to Egypt to lead his people. It was faith that took him out of Egypt. It was faith that separated him and his people from Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea. No matter what our circumstances may be, we can trust God to bring us out and to take us through. Jesus established the Lord's Supper after he led his disciples in celebrating the Passover. He is the fulfillment of the Passover as the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Each time we share in the Lord's Supper, we look back and remember his death, but we also look ahead and anticipate his coming again. When Jesus returns, a wonderful exodus will take place. The dead in Christ will be raised and the living believers will be caught up with them and taken to heaven to be with the Lord. What a savior. Rebecca? Rebecca is going to come. Okay, so you have um, one question for this section that I'd like for you to just address for a few minutes. And then when we're ready, um, I'll invite you to stand around your tables and we will partake of communion together. So if you'd go through this first question and reflect on uh, the lamb and Passover together, and then I'll call you back together.
Ugly air today. Okay, I'd like to invite you all to stand. And I'm going to sing you a question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? So we sing, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus, on that final night with his disciples, celebrating the Passover as the Hebrews had done for centuries before, says, this is my body, which is given for you. 
And this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He is saying, I am the hope of fallen humanity because I am the promised spotless lamb of God. Just as the blood painted on the Israelites' doors in Egypt meant that the angel of death would pass over those houses, so all who put their trust in the Messiah Jesus are covered by his blood and therefore will not bear the punishment for their own sin. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises of old. And Jesus' blood covers and cleanses us. May you attach your sense of self, your meaning and purpose, your moral compass and your hopes and dreams to the message delivered in that upper room and to the actual moment of sacrifice on that hill outside the city. May every moment of sin and weakness and failure be punctuated by you singing to yourself the ultimate answer to the ultimate question, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So together, let us take the bread as we remember the broken body of Jesus we eat together. Let us take the cup together as we remember the shed blood of Jesus. Let's drink together. God, we thank you. We thank you that your blood does wash away our sin. God, we thank you that you are a keeper of the promises that you make. God, that you sent Jesus, the spotless lamb, the firstborn, to take upon himself the sin of the world. God, we thank you for the fulfillment of all of your promises in Jesus, and we thank you that his blood covers and cleanses us. We receive your gift of life tonight. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are at part two. I just uh, want to address one question that was raised by Bob Fuller. <laughs> and that is, why do some versions say the firstborn and some ver versions say firstborn son? It's very simple if you read it in Hebrew. <laughs> Got my Hebrew Bible right here. But the word 
is, uh, for firstborn, is Bakur, which is in a uh, masculine, it is a masculine uh, noun in a masculine form. Now, I can't give you a Hebrew lesson here for very long, but simply to say that uh, it is understood that when it is in that form, that it would be referring to the male, the son. And so that's why some versions opt to put the son in there and others just don't do it. And so just in case some of you are reading different versions, uh, that might help you to know what the difference is. Okay, so redeemed and rejoicing. Somebody said, history does not long entrust the care of freedom to the weak or the timid. Somebody else said, there are two freedoms, the false, where a man is free to do what he likes, and the true, where a man is free to do what he ought. It is a mark of maturity when we learn that freedom is a tool to build with, not a toy to play with. And that freedom involves accepting responsibility. Israel's exodus experience taught them that their future success lay in fulfilling three important responsibilities. And we're going to look at these three, following the Lord, trusting the Lord, praising the Lord. So let's take a few minutes on each of these, following the Lord, chapter 13, 17 through 22. Israel's exodus from Egypt wasn't the end of their experience with God. In fact, it was the new beginning. In fact, somebody once said it took one night to take Israel, or Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. <laughs> if Israel obeyed his will, God would bring them into the promised land and give them their inheritance. Forty years later, Moses would remind the new generation when he said, he, the Lord, brought you out of Egypt to bring you in to give you the land as an inheritance. And the same thing can be said of the redemption we have in Christ. God brought us out of bondage that he might bring us into blessing. The person who trusts Jesus Christ is born again into the family of God, but that's just the beginning of an exciting new adventure, one that should lead to growth and conquest. God liberates us. He then leads us through the varied experiences of life a day at a time so that we might get to know him better and claim by faith all that he wants us to have. And at the same time, we come to know ourselves better. We discover our strengths and weaknesses. We grow in understanding God's will and trusting his promises. God's, God plans the path for people, for his people. In fact, in verse 18, chapter 13, God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So God led them. God has a plan. God has a path. Nothing takes God by surprise. In his providence, he plans the best way for people to take. And we may not always understand the way that he chooses or even agree with it, but his way is always the right way. We may confidently say, he leads me, 
in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we should humbly pray, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. If there had been any military strategist in Israel that night, they probably would have disagreed with the evacuation route God selected because it was just simply too long. Israel's immediate destination was Mount Sinai. But why take two million people the long way instead of using the shorter, easier route? Well, the answer is because there were Egyptian military posts along the shorter route. The soldiers stationed there would have challenged the Hebrews and also crossing the Philistine borders would have invited their army to attack and the last thing Israel needed was a war with their neighbors. God knew what he was doing when he chose the longer way. If you permit the Lord to direct your steps, expect to be led occasionally on paths that may seem unnecessarily long and indirect. Remind yourself, God knows what he's doing. He isn't in a hurry. As long as you follow him, you're safe and in a place of his blessing. He may choose, he may close some doors and suddenly open others, but we must be alert at all times. God encourages his people's faith in verse 19. God will certainly come to help you. Before he died, Joseph made his brothers promise that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, their descendants would take his casket with them to the promised land. And Joseph knew that God would keep his promise and rescue the children of Israel. Joseph knew also that he belonged in the land of Canaan with his people. So what did this casket mean to the generations of Hebrews who lived during the years of terrible bondage in Egypt? Well, the Hebrews could look at Joseph's casket and be encouraged. Remember, the Lord cared for Joseph during his trials and finally delivered him. And he would care for the nation of Israel and eventually set them free. And during their years in the wilderness, Israel saw Joseph's casket as a reminder that God has his times and keeps his promises. Joseph was dead, but he was bearing witness to the faithfulness of God. And when they arrived in the land, the Hebrews kept their promise and buried Joseph with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an idolat it is, is it idolatrous to have a visible reminder of God's faithfulness? Well, not necessarily. You find several significant monuments in the book of Joshua. When Israel crossed the Jordan River, they put up a monument of stones on the farther shore to commemorate what God had done. They also put stones on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to remind them of God's law. A heap of stones was a reminder of Achan's betrayal, and a witness stone was a reminder of Israel's re rededication after the conquest of the lamb, land. Samuel set up a stone to commemorate Israel's victory over the Philistine, called it an Ebenezer, the stone of help. So as long as we keep obeying the Lord, such reminders can encourage our faith. The important thing is that we that they point to the Lord and not to the dead past. 
and that we continue to walk by faith and obey the Lord today. God goes before his people to lead the way. Exodus 13, 20, 22. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them. The nation was guided by a pillar by, of, cl of cloud by day, and a, it became a pillar of fire by night. This pillar was identified with the angel of the Lord who led the nation. God occasionally spoke from the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud was also shielded from the people, from, shielded the people from the hot sun as they journeyed by day. And when the cloud moved, the camp moved. When the cloud waited, the camp waited. We don't have the same kind of visible guidance today, but we do have the word of God, which is a light and a fire. It's interesting to note that the pillar of fire gave light to the Hebrews, but was darkness to the Egyptians. God's people are enlightened by the word, but the unsaved can't understand God's truth. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth that guides us by teaching us the Word. Just as God spoke to Moses from the pillar, so the Lord communicates with us from the Scriptures by making them very clear to us. There are times when we aren't sure which way God wants us to go, but if we wait on Him, He will eventually guide us. How foolish it would have been for the Hebrews to pause their march and take a vote to see which route they should be taking to Mount Sinai. Surely there's a place for community council and referendum, but when God has spoken, there's no need for consultation. On more than one occasion in Scripture, the majority was wrong. Trusting the Lord, chapter 14. God, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Hebrew people were told what God wanted them to do. But Moses was told why God was doing it. Psalm says, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And the leadership of Moses was the key ingredient in Israel's success. So chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, talks about Egypt's pursuit. We won't look at too much of this, but it says, he will chase after you. Talking about Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel. Now, it dawned on Pharaoh and his officers that by allowing their Hebrew slaves to escape, they had threatened, if not destroyed, Egypt's whole economy. So the logical thing was to go after the Hebrews and bring them back. Now, we're given another reason why the Lord selected this route. The reports would convince Pharaoh that the Hebrews were wandering like lost sheep in the wilderness. They were fair game to this army to pursue and to capture. Well, the Lord was actually drawing the Egyptians into his trap. And what seemed like an easy victory to Egypt would turn out to be an humiliating defeat, and the Lord would get all of the glory. Once again, God would triumph over Pharaoh and the gods and goddesses of Egypt. Pharaoh commandeered all of his chariots, all of the chariots of Egypt, mounted his own royal chariot, and pursued the people of Israel. Well, verses 10 
and 11 through 12 talk about Israel's panic. Yeah, you see the Egyptians chasing after you. You may not feel so good. It says the people of Israel looked up and panicked. As long as the Israelites kept their eyes on the fiery pillar and followed the Lord, they were walking by faith and no enemy could touch them. But when they took their eyes off the Lord and looked back and saw the Egyptians getting nearer, they became frightened and began to complain. These verses introduced the disappointing pattern of Israel's behavior during their march from Egypt to Canaan. As long as everything was going well, they truly, usually obeyed the Lord and Moses and made progress. But if there was any trial or discomfort in their circumstances, they immediately began to complain to Moses and to the Lord and asked to go back to Egypt. But before we criticize the Hebrews, perhaps we better examine our own hearts. How much disappointment or discomfort does it take to make us unhappy with the Lord's will so that we stop believing and start complaining? It says in 2 Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. When you forget God's promises, you start to imagine the worst possible scenario. The Hebrews were sure that they and their children would die in the wilderness and as soon as Pharaoh's army caught up with them. The frightened people reminded Moses that they had told him to leave them alone, but he had persisted in challenging Pharaoh. Israel was now in a terrible predicament and Moses was to blame. Unbelief has a way of erasing from our memories all of the demonstrations we've seen of God's great power. Let me say that again. Unbelief has a way of erasing from our memories all of the demonstrations we have seen of God's great power and all the instances we know of God's faithfulness to his word. Verses 13 through 31, God's power. Long section Hope you all read it again. Moses was a man of faith who knew that Pharaoh's army was no match to Yahweh. He gave several commands to the people and the first was fear not. Sometimes fear energizes us and we quickly try to avoid danger. But sometimes fear paralyzes us and we just don't know what to do. Israel was tempted to flee, so Moses gave his second command, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. By faith, the Hebrews had marched out of Egypt, and now by faith, they would stand still and watch God destroy the Egyptian charioteers. Moses not only told them to stand still, but also to be still. How easy it would have been to weep, complain, keep criticizing Moses, but none of those things would have helped them out of their predicament. Unbelief, complaints, but faith obeys and brings glory to the Lord. Be still 
and know that I am God. What is there to complain about when we have the wonderful promise, the Lord shall fight for you? Later in their journey, the Lord would help Joshua and the Hebrew army fight their, their battles. But this time, God would defeat the Egyptians without Israel's assistance. The next order came from God to Moses. Go forward. Get moving. The fact that Israel was facing the sea was no problem to God. And he told Moses exactly what to do. When Moses lifted his rod the waters would part and Israel would be able to walk across the dry land and escape the Egyptian army. At Moses' signal, the waters would then flow back down, flow back and drown the Egyptian soldiers and prevent Israel from returning to Egypt. In the years that followed, each time the Hebrews expressed a desire to return to Egypt, they should have remembered that God closed the waters and locked the door. Why did God perform this series of miracles for the Hebrew people? They certainly didn't deserve it. They stood there cringing in fear and complaining that God didn't seem to know what he was doing. To begin with, he was keeping his promise that he would deliver Israel and take them as his own people. In, in the future, pious Hebrews would measure everything by the demonstration of God's great power at the Exodus. But God had another purpose in mind, revealing once more his power and glory in defeating the Egyptian army. It says in verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that word there is Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The pillar moved between the Israelites and the Egyptians, indicating that God had become a wall of protection between his people and their enemies. The pillar gave light to Israel, but darkness to the enemy. But for their faithless people of Egypt couldn't understand the ways of God. And when Moses stretched out his hand, the Lord sent a powerful wind to, that drove the seawaters back and opened the way for the Hebrews to cross. In fact, Psalm 77 indicates that a severe rainstorm accompanied the high winds. And after Israel had crossed, the rain turned Israel's dry pathway into a muddy road. And when the Egyptian soldiers tried to follow, the mud disabled their chariots and impeded their progress. And when the waters returned, all of the Egyptian soldiers were drowned. And it was indeed a night to be remembered. Knowing that the enemy was in pursuit, and hearing the wind blowing all night, the Israelites must have wondered what was going to happen and why God was taking so long. But when we have faith in God's promises, we have peace in our hearts. Why are you so fearful? Jesus asked his disciples after he had calmed a storm. How is it that you have no faith? Faith and fear can't live together in the same heart. One will destroy the other. True faith depends on what God says, not on what we see or how we feel. It has been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Well, that's superstition. Faith 
is obeying in spite of consequence. This series of divine miracles was certainly a revelation of the greatness and power of God, his faithfulness to his promises and his concern for his people. Future psalmists actually would praise the Lord for his mighty works at the Red Sea. The prophets would use the Exodus to encourage the Hebrews, Hebrew exiles in their return to their land after the Babylonian captivity, as well as to motivate the backslidden nation to return to the Lord. A number of the prophets use those words. Moses' position, Exodus 14, 31. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Paul saw Israel's march through the sea as a baptism. For the water was on either side like a wall, and the cloud of God's presence was behind them and over them. And as it were, Israel was immersed as they quickly crossed the dry bed of the sea. Their deliverance was certainly the act of God but it was accomplished through the obedient leadership of Moses. And as a result, the people believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, they now comprised a nation. And with Moses as their leader, and through this baptism, the people of Israel were identified with Moses just as in water baptism, God's people today are identified with Jesus Christ. The miracle of the Exodus became a part of Israel's confession of faith when they brought their gifts to the Lord. And the third main point, the praising the Lord, Exodus 15. With their enemies drowned and their freedom secure, the people of Israel burst into song and praised the Lord. We don't read that they praised God while they were enslaved in Egypt, while they were going out of the land. They were complaining to Moses and asking him to let them go back, but it takes maturity for God's people to have a song in the night. And the Hebrews were very immature in their faith at that time. This hymn, praise, hymn of praise has four stanzas, and these are, uh, we'll look at them quickly. First of all, God's victory is announced in verses one through five. And again, can't read it all, but the Lord is mentioned 10 times in this hymn as Israel sang to the Lord and about the Lord. True worship involves faithful, faithful witness to God, to who God is and what he has done for his people. God's victory was a glorious victory. It was wholly the work of the Lord. The Egyptian army was thrown into the sea and the soldiers sank like stones and like lead. They were consumed like burning stubble. Pharaoh had ordered the Hebrew baby boys to be drowned, so God paid him back in kind and drowned his troops. The statement, the Lord is a man of war, is interesting, and it may upset some people who feel that anything relating to warfare is alien to the gospel and the Christian life, and there are some people who think that they ought to take all of the, any kind of militant hymns and throw their hymnals away, but that's a whole other story. But in any case, Moses promised the people the Lord shall fight for you. And one of God's names is Yahweh Saboth, which means Lord of hosts or Lord of the armies. This is a title that is actually used 285 times in the Old Testament. In fact, 
Some of you know the name Martin Luther. He wrote a great hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I won't read all of that song, but very interesting. So if there is a, if there is in this world an enemy like Satan, and if sin and evil are hateful to God, then he must wage war against them. Isaiah said the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Jesus Christ is both the lamb who died for our sins and the lion who judges sin. And one day he will ride forth to conquer his enemies. To emphasize only God's love and eliminate God as light is to rob God of his attributes of righteousness, holiness, and justice. On three special occasions recorded in Scripture, the Hebrews sing, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, when the Hebrew remnant laid the foundation of the second temple, when the Hebrews were, are regathered and returned to their land, enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, in each instance, the Lord gives strength, salvation, and song. God's weapons are described in verses 6 through 10. The Lord is a man of war who doesn't fight with conventional weapons, using human characteristics to describe uh, divine attributes. The singers declare that his right hand is glorious in power. His majesty throws his opponents down. His anger consumes them like fire eats up stubble. The breath from his nostrils is the wind that blew back the waters and congealed them and so that they stood like a wall. When confronted, when the overconfident, rather, Egyptian soldiers thought to catch up with the Hebrews, God simply breathed and the waters returned and drowned the army. What a mighty God he is. God's character extolled in verses 11 through 16 glorious holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. In the ten plagues that he sent to, on the land, the Lord had already proved himself greater than all the gods of Egypt. It's no wonder that the Hebrews began to sing. In this section, the stanza goes on to praise God for his power, his mercy to deliver, his wisdom to guide, his awesomeness of his person to bring fear to the hearts of his enemies. And then God's promises are fulfilled in 16 through 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place the Lord reserved for his own dwelling, the sanctuary. This stanza looks forward to Israel's conquest of, the, of Canaan and points out that God purchased Israel and that they are his people. The nations in Canaan would be as still and dead as stones as the Hebrew army conquered the land and the tribes claimed their inheritance. God brought them out of Egypt that he might bring them into Canaan and plant them in their own land. And God would put his sanctuary among his people and dwell among them in glory. And when you read these verses, you kind of get the impression that Pharaoh himself accompanied his army when you're talking about what was going on here. But it reads that for the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. Anyway, their joyful enthusiasm was expressed as they sang and played their tambourines and danced before the Lord. 
And it wasn't easy for them to carry the burden of freedom. And God had to teach them how to live a day at a time as they traveled on their pathway to their promised land that God had given to them. Okay, we got a few minutes for a couple questions. So go to it. God bless you.
All right, everybody, I'm going to close us in prayer. And then after I pray, if you want to continue your conversation, you are more than welcome to do that. All right. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you uh, just for the reminders of who you are and what you've done. And I pray that as we leave this place, uh, God, that we will not be a forgetful people, uh, but we will be a people that remember uh, your great and mighty works, that we remember that you walk with us, that we will remember what you did on the cross And God, that we will remember uh, what it is that you have called us to. Pray that we would be a faithful people, that we would serve you humbly this week. In your name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your week.